Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Asim Sajid Akhtar and his new book, The Politics of Common Sense, State, Society, and Culture in Pakistan, an incisive study of continuity as well as change in Pakistan, and why this has led to greater conservatism rather than a push for political change. Asim Sajid Akhtar, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Asim, I wonder if we could start with you telling us a bit about yourself, a sort of intellectual biography, if you wish. Sure. Um, well, I'm uh, currently, uh, I teach, I'm a uh, permanent faculty member at Qaeda Azam University in Islamabad. And um, prior to that, I spent some years teaching uh, also in, in Pakistan, in a different city in Lahore, at the Lahore University of Management Sciences. Um, I um, Most of my education was, was abroad uh, in the U.S., in the U.K., um, and um, alongside all of my sort of academic commitments, I'm also... Uh, politically active, um, associated with a small uh, um, progressive party called the Avami Workers Party. Can you tell party. us a little bit more about that and what it stands for? Um, yeah, it's a, you know, it's, it's a left of center political organization. Um, in part, actually, we'll get to it in part. Um, the book is, is actually documents this, this process through which um, the left, as a, a fairly viable mainstream force up till 70s and 80s, um, has sort of been forced uh, almost completely onto the margins, which, of course, is not uh, a story that's dissimilar to many parts of the world, especially um, in Muslim-majority countries where, you know, secular left uh, politics was uh, was was uh, was a very defining force uh, in society and and in the polity um, until similar times till the seventies and eighties to be then displaced by by uh, uh, the religious right um, and so something quite similar has happened here so really our party or our efforts have just been over the last perhaps 10, 15 years to, to reintroduce a political idiom of the left into something like the mainstream. It's hard work. Um, and, um, uh, you know, there, there's lots of uh, constraints that we come up against. But, you know, in a country like, like this, um, where um, everyday forms of resistance emerge, um, uh, you know, quite spontaneously. I mean, that that is always a foothold for for people on the left to to, uh, to to join hands with, and that's more or less what we do. I'm sure we'll come back to a lot of this as we discuss your book. Uh, perhaps we can start with you. You entitled it "The Politics of Common Sense," and maybe you can explain a bit about what you mean by that. Sure. Um, common sense, um, the the phrase or the, or the term itself, is something that I borrow from. Uh, the, the the very well known Italian thinker uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci, um, and for Gramsci, common sense, frankly, um, true to true to the, the words itself, essentially is uh, the taken for granted way of doing things, of seeing the world that many of us um, unconsciously adopt um, by virtue of 
being born into uh, particular social settings and and um, and that you know um, that typically um, we don't question um, because the rest of the world is also doing and seeing it like we are or we're doing it and seeing it like they are um, so common sense then refers to to that sort of dynamic or that sort of logic of how our everyday consciousness is shaped and, and reproduced. Um, so really all I'm saying in the book, the politics of common sense is then a particular way of seeing the world, a particular way of being the world, and, and more specifically, a particular kind of political um, um, sort of worldview, which informs everyday political action um, of, of, you know, everyone in, in Pakistani society from, from the top to the bottom, which was, in my understanding, um, institutionalized in the 1980s uh, under the, the regime of, of General Ziaul Haq. Um, and this politics of common sense um, was cynical, transactional, um, was very status quo oriented in comparison to, and, and, and what the Zia regime essentially then was trying to do was to displace more expansive, um, sort of progressive, uh, transformative uh, imaginaries of politics that, as I just mentioned earlier, had been um, quite uh, sort of popular uh, in Pakistani society through the 70s and 80s. I'm sure we'll get back to General Zia's period. Overall, you describe a process that goes from an exclusionary political order inherited from the colonial power to a period in which that order is challenged to a return to hegemonic patronage politics. It's a process that other countries have witnessed also. So what makes Pakistan different? Or is your book a case study? I mean, in some ways it is. Yeah, I think that... um... You know, there is something that, I mean, uh, Pakistan is, you know, of course, has its own specificities and peculiarities. Um, but on the one hand, this is a story that is a um, a story that's consistent with with events and, and sort of developments in many parts of the world. I think that we all know there was an era of, of, of post-Second World War um, radicalism around the world, and that was sometimes seen in the form of anti-colonial movements, you know, anything from all the way from Algeria to Vietnam to the, to the, to the Latin American um, sort of radical movements that, of course, were triggered by the Cuban Revolution um, to just, um, you know, uh, upheavals within Western society itself, you know, uh, in America against the Vietnam War with the with the 1968 movements in in, in many uh, Western uh, in Western Europe, so there is there is a story that that Pakistan you know is a, a parallel story in that all of that period of, of of radicalism then gave way to of course a period of of sharp reaction you know from starting with um, anything you know any example you want to take the. The, the Arab secularists who were displaced, uh, Pinochet, Reagan, Thatcher, um, you know, all over the world. In Pakistan, Ziaul Haq came to power after deposing and hanging um, a left-wing populist leader in Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. 
So, so there's there is a, a parallel story. Now, having said that, of course, Pakistan has its own, um, as I said, peculiarities. One of the most obvious being that it is a a state, a country that's founded, or a political community. Let's say its idea of the political community um, that undergirds the Pakistani nation state is is well, it's not one of a kind, it's two of a kind, because only the only other country like it is Israel, where religious um, affiliation uh, is, is what essentially determines your claims to citizenship. So that is, of course, something that, that always demands separate interrogation. But having said that, I, I do place this story within a larger sort of global context. It strikes me that one of the book's major contributions is your description at how the grassroots, at, at, at how at the grassroots level, the religious right was able to use its popular support to force its way into Pakistan's power structure. Uh, and again, the question is, uh, you know, is, is Pakistan unique in this? In a lot of ways, you're seeing that happening at the moment uh, across the globe. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think that um, there is a sense that, you know, um, if you look at the ideologues of the religious right, the big, you know, the sort of the, the very prominent ideologues of the religious right in the, in, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, anyone like a Maududi or a Sayyid Qutb, um, you know, their, their idea of, of, of what they were trying to do was, was more a very sort of pristine, selected um, um, you know, a group that led um, society into something uh, like an Islamic transformation. But that changed. I mean, Pakistan, it changed, and it changed everywhere. You know, the Brotherhood um, in, in much of the Arab Middle East, uh, the Jamaat in, in South Asia, um, these organizations became decidedly more populist um, from 60s, 70s, 80s onwards. And I think that was you know, whether that was pragmatism or cynicism, it, it, it scarcely matters. What matters is that did happen. There was a sense that, um, you know, a colleague of mine, Homera Iktadar, has actually written a paper on this. There was a sense that, as she says, the religious right was learning from the left, learning its methods, um, learning that you had to, well, didn't have to, but, but this could be a viable strategy in part to displace the left, was to uh, was to, to take over its organizing bases, you know, whether in students or 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 uh, or the organized working class, uh, even in 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 in, uh, in terms of peasant collectivities, um, you know, journalists, teachers, in all of these associational groups, where through the sixties and seventies it was it was left wing organizations that were were uh, were were dominant or at least. Uh, were prominent, um, the right did um, learn those methods and took on the ta- the challenge of uh, of establishing its own basis of popular support. And then, of course, subsequently, it's it's also added new um, new elements to that. So, for instance, most uh, of the right wing organizations in Pakistan, prominently so, run big welfare wings. Um, which of course also coincides with with the retreat of of the state from from a welfare function, right? Under neoliberalism globally, so so absolutely that's what happened. It's happened here. Um, it's happened 
obviously to an extent successfully. Um, and and that, that is one of the things that I document. And I think that is crucial uh, to explaining the politics of common sense, because when when the right wing is there in the everyday sense in all of these associational groups uh, in your in your neighborhoods um, at a popular level, um, then of course it, it, it creates it, it's then it no longer just a revolution from above in the Maududian or Qutubian sense. It also becomes a revolution that then is uh, or a passive revolution to use another Gramscian term that does that does penetrate into the trenches of society. You, you drew the comparison with Israel, which I think works at one level. The, the difference between Israel and Pakistan, of course, is that Israel, while uh, was, was, was clearly defining Jews as a national group who, who also happened to be Jewish. And, 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 and so the whole focus of it was a nationalist focus. And if anything, the ingathering of, of Jews into uh, one territory, whereas Pakistan seems to have always been struggling between the notion of a religious and a national community. You made the comparison between Israel and Pakistan, uh, which on one level I think is correct, but on another level, the Israelis very clearly were a nationalist movement, defining Jews as a national group with a common religion and trying to gather them into one piece of territory, which would be their nation state. Whereas Pakistan seems to always, and still in some ways, teeter between what the community is, religious versus nationalist, or national. And you see that also, you mentioned Maududi, the Islamic thinker, who played a very important role in creating in Saudi Arabia, writing the template for the institutions like the Islamic University of Medina or the uh, World Muslim League that were the, the pillars of what then became a massive Saudi global campaign uh, to promote an ultra-conservative religious worldview. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, of course, the, the comparison is not to suggest that they are that they can be seamlessly mapped upon one another. There is, nevertheless, however, I mean, I think it's important. I mean, uh, Faisal Devji wrote a book, right, called Muslim Zion, um, I think a couple of years ago or three or four years ago, to, to sort of just flesh out this. This, I mean, in, in the sense that the thinkers and the activists of the what was called the All India Muslim League, which sort of spearheaded um, the struggle for Pakistan as a separate homeland um, to to be to be separated from the rest of British India. Um, there were very clear similarities. Like these, these are these are people living in a different space, in a different geographical space in North India, imagining um, a new political community organized around around shared religious identity in an entirely different geographical space, which was Western India, which became Pakistan. And in that sense, you know, this this diaspora, this logic of a diaspora sitting somewhere else and saying we are going to create a country which is somehow divinely ordained in a different geographical space, almost almost abstracting from the real history of that space. Uh, I think that's the similarity. Yes, of course, on the other hand, there, there are differences. And, and one of the big things about Pakistani nationhood or the crisis of Pakistani nationhood is precisely the fact that you have this huge um, sort of ethnic divide where 
there, I mean, which of course played out in 1971, right? When the Eastern wing of that, of that, of Pakistan at the time, um, which was constituted largely of, of Bengali speakers, chose in some ways to define themselves as Bengalis rather than as Muslims in choosing, in separating from Pakistan and creating the independent state of Bangladesh. And of course, ethnic tensions and, and ethnic sort of uh, the deep politicization of ethnic and linguistic differences is, is the defining feature of Pakistani politics and always has been. And that's one of the things that 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 uh, the politics of common sense also sought to do was to disarm um, these 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 ethno-linguistic groups. Um, and again to to sort of reassert this logic that we are all Muslims and anybody else, any other kind of political um, sort of idea or imaginary or mobilization. It could be class, it could be ethnic identity that threatens status quo um, has to be disarmed, has to be displaced. Um, that, that, Of course, the fact that that was attempted um, in the 1980s, I earlier said it was successful to one extent, but on the other hand, it hasn't been because resistance continues to, to persist, um, especially in Pakistan along uh, the lines of ethnic nationalism. So yes, I, I see what you mean in terms of the fact that there are distinctions uh, between the Israeli and the Pakistani project, for sure, um, notwithstanding um, their similarities. Would you describe the role of the military that from the outset perceived the need to protect against India and Hindu domination as a uniquely Pakistani feature? And if so, how? Uh, or, or, or how would the military's political role compare to countries like Turkey and Algeria, where the armed forces also played an important domestic political role, and in some cases leading to the emergence of a national security state? Yeah, again, uh, I would say similarities and differences both. Uh, yes, that Pakistan's you know raison d'etre in some ways is it's not being India. Because of its its identity as as the the part of British India that separated, um, and so it it was you know partly due to Cold War compulsions, it became a U.S. satellite very early on in the peace, um, but also for its own internal uh, political reasons or even sociological reasons. I mentioned the the very disproportionate influence of migrants uh, that came over from from India into Pakistan. Um, so for all, for all of those many different reasons, yes, Pakistan became a country which defined itself um, and over time a society due to deep sort of processes of indoctrination that defined itself as besieged. And then again, a very similar sort of an Israeli type of, 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 uh, of siege mentality that we are surrounded by the enemies of Islam, India being... The, the primary example, India has never accepted Pakistan, India is always out to get us, and therefore um, this immense national security apparatus was created under the pretext that, that the only thing that matters was that we save our country. Um, and needless to say, when that happens, then the military takes on a larger-than-life role. Um, for sure, I mean, uh, other countries you know, like a Turkey or an Indonesia or, a, I don't know, um, you know, a Brazil back in the day or, or even 
even in in in, in uh, southern Europe of Portugal. Um, you know, they they've had over bloated political militaries or Praetorian militaries. Um, but it, there is something to be said for the fact that in most of those countries that those militaries have now retreated into some kind of sort of secondary role. I mean, they're they're still powerful. They still have institutional interests, but the idea that um, that that society would welcome or support um, sort of an overt military intervention into politics is is increasingly sort of in many countries, not all, as we saw last what was it a year and a bit ago with with the, the in Turkey again, but in many of those countries with the, with the, with Praetorian pasts, um, that's increasingly unlikely. In Pakistan. Yes, it's been now 10 years since the military was directly in power, but its manipulations and its and its overwhelming sort of in some ways arbitration over basic matters of, of policy and, and resource allocation is, you know, it's plain for all to see. Um, and, and I think, yes, I mean, there is something unique about the fact that, again, that ideology plays in this story and allows for that uh, very almost omnipotent role to be reproduced. Um, you know, whether that stays the same or not, I think will probably be one of the most important questions in, in, in how Pakistan and its society moves from this place. Um, but definitely in, in the, the, the story that I've, I've written out, the politics of common sense, um, is, does revolve around, in part, or at least is structured heavily by this larger-than-life role and and its and its and its rootedness or its or its foundational uh, logic in in ideology, which which is deeply imbibed by a large part of the of the Pakistani population. And I think if that weren't there, and if that was challenged on a mass scale, then I think you know whether it be the military or even large parts of of uh, of the Pakistani elite um, or or you know. The structure of power more generally, I think, would be subject to substantial uh, unraveling. You describe how economic development, urbanization, migration, and modernization, particularly in agriculture in the 1960s and 1970s, broadened the spectrum of political players and, and, and a transition to more ideological left-wing and class and ethnicity-based politics in Pakistan. And all of that was reflected, as you mentioned earlier, in the rise of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto and his Pakistan People's Party. And that in turn provoked the response that came along, came not only from the traditional feudal class, but also the commercial middle class, which again is true for many countries. Perhaps you can elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, as you say, it's true for many countries, you know, um, you know, the the post-colonial world in particular, um, newly independent countries uh, in the 60s were uh, modernizing. Uh, this was part of a general wave of, of, of radical nationalism um, where, you know, the independence or, or sort of anti-colonial sentiments were still, um, you know, were, were still very uh, sort of prominent. Uh, and there was this perception that, that we must modernize, we must in some ways uh, protect our domestic industry from from the mother country or from 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 Western imperialist powers more generally. 
I mean, even in Pakistan, which was, as I said, a U.S. satellite um, under Ayub Khan in the 60s, there was this sort of, this was a very uh, prominent uh, sort of, this was this was the dominant imaginary of of, of the regime's um, policy uh, logic, which was that look, um, we need to set up domestic industry, we need to we need to modernize agriculture, um, we need to create um, sort of pockets of, of modernity in some ways, and then those pockets will grow, and that meant urbanization, that meant labor saving technologies like the green revolution in uh, in in agriculture. And, and huge migrations into big cities like Karachi, for instance, in particular, Karachi then becomes a hotbed of industrial, of the industrial working class. Um, um, and then the trade union movement evolves and, and spreads and, and radicalizes. It's similarly in these cities that, that young people, which of course, again, is a global trend in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, students in particular are radicalized or are, are mobilized by by international developments, um, and and that that the combination of of a, of a radicalized student movement, of a radicalized trade union movement, and then also some you know big prominent mobilizations of, of the of the classical or landless peasantry, then all come together uh, to give to put wind in the sails of of of, of a political left. Now, Bhutto was not the only. Uh, manifestation or, or, or sort of expression of that of that movement or of that time. Um, there was also a very prominent um, political or party called the National Avami Party. And in fact, in the 1970 election, which was which which was sort of like a crystallization of this entire process of radi- of, of radical of the rise of radical um, left politics, um, in Bhutto, actually, the People's Party won in two provinces. Well, in West Pakistan, I'm talking at the time, in Punjab and Sindh, and the National Awami Party won in the other two provinces, which was at the time the the national the, the NWFP and Balochistan. Both were overtly left wing organizations. Both uh, explicitly espoused socialist politics and socialist policy frameworks. So, so the the point remains the same that, that there was a widespread sort of social social basis. For this um, rise and emergence of of of, uh, of left wing politics, and and of course similarly, as as you pointed out, it was uh, further developments, social and economic developments, that then also undergirded the challenge to or the reaction to, particularly um, this this commercial urbanized middle class, which you know when Bhutto comes to power. Starts to see, oh, he's not his his policy frameworks are geared towards the, the the class below us on the social rung, and they start to feel threatened by that. And then the combination of this commercial middle class with the religious right then becomes Ziaul Haq's almost, uh, in some ways, primary allies, along with, as you say, the old entrenched elites that also had lots to lose from. You know, Bhutto's policies of nationalization or land reforms or what have you. And so therein uh, comes, you know, the politics of common sense um, to, as I said earlier, to disarm the mobilized um, radical commu- constituencies that, that, that had emerged with, with, uh, with modernization and urbanization. 
It strikes me that the role of uh, religion-based political groups in Pakistan was in many ways unique, probably because of the way that Pakistan was founded, and that its expression really came to the fore with the military regime of C.O. Huck. You've argued that this was not simply a reassertion of power uh, of the religious right, but that the structure of power changed in Pakistan. That's right. Yeah, as I just pointed out, I think that the religious right has, uh, and you were asked earlier, right, about their popular, um, the, the popular base of the right. And I think that's sort of, I sort of addressed this earlier that, and we just talked about the rise of a, of a commercial middle class um, with the rise of small towns, with the rise of secondary and tertiary sectors of the agrarian economy, um, with, with an emergent service sector. Um, so in all of these spheres, in all of these economic spheres, um, you see a concomitant rise of right-wing religious uh, uh, ideology. Um, and, and that's why I said earlier, the old Maldudian model, where this is a relatively elite um, set of, um, you know, sort of uh, a group of, that, that tries to direct change from above, it, we, it moved more into sort of a different method method where so you have so one of the big things that that the right um, has the symbiotic relationship with a class of traders and merchants um, and they often are the primary donors to to right-wing causes to religious causes um, and so that sort of that that symbiosis is is, uh, is is something I've documented so yeah so religion has been, um, uh, you know, of course, uh, in terms of political ideology has been there and thereabouts from, from day one, from before the creation of the country itself. But its meaning and its, and its, in some ways, its texture changes in the 1980s. And of course, the other side of that story is, is, is jihad and militancy, right? And, and the Afghan war. Um, and of course, that's not something that I speak about at length in the book because it's 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 been uh, you know it's it's become like uh, something that 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 just about everyone wants to write about, and especially in its current manifestation of 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 the story of terrorism. Um, but of course, that that whole process of 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 uh, introducing and romanticizing militancy in society, of course, took takes deep root as well, um, and has substantial impacts uh, in society over a period of time so there's 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 ordinary people who become associated with the right via the war economy uh, they become associated with the right via you know trading and merchant activities they become associated with the right via a very um, sort of uh, even even education um, which was heavily uh, manipulated or our, our curricula were, were redeveloped under Ziaul Haq. Um, so, so there's all sorts of spheres of society in which you see um, right-wing ideas and, and then um, taking root and, and therefore a large number of people being uh, mobilized by them. You, you mentioned the, the Afghan war, which I was going to mention, which is in some ways unique to Pakistan. But you also had the other factor that played into that, which was uh, a lot of external influence, whether that was Saudi funding or funding by other Arab states, including the Iraqis, as, as well as 
uh, post-revolutionary Iran. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, Pakistan has been sort of a staging ground for sectarian conflict. Um, you know, Saudi influence, as you mentioned, uh, after 78, the after the Iranian revolution, uh, countervailing sort of um, proxies started to prop up uh, as well. And that, that has played out now over the best part of 40 years, and it's brutalized Pakistani society. Um, you know, the, the, you know, to say in Pakistan today that Islam is the guiding light of, of, the, of society and polity and everything is to really beg the question, well, which Islam? Um, because there's, you know, the, the conflicts within uh, the right have reached epic proportions. Um, more recently, there's been an even a, a new sort of uh, twist in this tale with the rise of what is called Brelvi uh, militancy. And, and that speaks to the fact that much of um, what persisted through the, 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 the Afghan war years and, and, and into the, into the, into the noughties was, uh, was a school of, of Islamic jurisprudence, which associated with, with either Saudi officialdom, Wahhabism, or Deobandi, uh, what was also called, well, not the same, but there was sort of a parallel school called the Deobandi school, um, which was much more scriptural and, 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 and so on. And, and now, in the last few years, the Brelvis have also been politicized, and the Brelvis are those who are associated with, with shrines and, and the more sort of, uh, sort of softer, so to speak, softer uh, interpretations of Islam. Um, but they have also been uh, become a, a fairly active political and sometimes militant um, force. So this is a never-ending. Uh, um, in some ways, it it continues to uh, deepen this 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 crisis. And of course, it has much to do with the way in which the Saudis, in particular, um, have have sought to 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 extend or to to spread. Um, Wahhabism through much of of, uh, of of the Muslim world and continue to do so as far as I see. Just to stay on this for one more minute, it strikes me what, what that has produced is that this ultra-conservative religious worldview has almost become woven into the fabric of significant segments of the population as well as into the fabric of key institutions of the state. Uh, which probably means, certainly if you're coming from the left, a much more difficult situation to to, to counter. Yeah, no doubt. Not just difficult, um, downright, um, you know, oppressive. Uh, so absolutely, I think that there is a, you know, the state, it, internally, the st state institutions themselves have, you know, with inductions, of conservatives, or, or just the fact that there's been such widespread indoctrination uh, via the media and via the educational curriculum and so on, it, over the last 30 or 40 years means that, yeah, it, you know, state institutions, uh, officialdom more generally, you know, commentators, the journalistic community, teachers, you know, all of those segments of society uh, are. With exception, of course, there is a propensity towards or, or a real imbibing of, of, a, of a conservative 
religious worldview. And, and needless to say that a lot of that means not only a dismissive attitude towards sort of progressive, secular, left-wing ideas, but, but frankly, uh, a very threatening attitude. Um, and, and of course, that derives in, in large part from the fact that the jihad, as it was romanticized, was very much directed towards, um, towards the Soviet Union and this very explicit demonizing of, of, of the communist other of the progressive other, of the secular other. And that took deep root, and that is something that we still live with. And, it, it, of course, it makes it hard to operate in a society um, which I don't think by definition is conservative, but, you know, as as this played out, as the politics of common sense, as, I, as I've explained it, was institutionalized, uh, now, you know, an entire generation or two of young people have, have imbibed those ideas and, and you know anything that any kind of reassertion of of uh, progressive political ideas has to um, not only take account of that, but has to take on the challenge of of, of facing up to that to that very conservative um, mainstream. You said it wasn't by definition conservative. The question is, has it become by by definition conservative? ultra-conservative? I mean, I'm not a believer in the fact that, that societies are, that, you know, that society sort of is is by definition anything. I mean, I think that this is the whole point. That's sort of what the story I've tried to map, is that this is a society, no matter how many things we, no matter how many of the trends we we sort of draw from having taken root from the partition itself or from the constitution of the country itself. But nevertheless, society in the 60s and 70s was not like this, was not super conservative, um, was not, um, uh, you know, was, was the sectarianism was, was not something that, 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 that played out on an everyday basis in violent ways. Um, anything from dress um, to segregation. Of course, these things existed, but I think that what I've tried to suggest is that what happened in the 80s was was a very conscious state-sponsored um, set of initiatives to, to really push society in a particular direction. Now, of course, that is what it has become, correct? Uh, I, I, does it have to stay that way? Will it stay that way? Is there some kind of like, in some ways... A, a critical line that has been crossed from which now there is no return. I don't believe so. I mean, I, I, susp- I suppose just just because of of my political leanings, this could just be a matter of wishful thinking. Um, but I think there's many reasons to believe, or many reasons to 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 at least um, you know that there's there's a reasonable thing to say that this may this this is this is subject to change again, or subject to to some kind of evolution in a different direction and i think that that there's many factors to that which many of which some of which have nothing to do with pakistan like just let's say digital technologies right and the the globalization of culture and so on and so forth um some have to do with pakistan yeah i mean there, there is a very i mean this is something for which those of us who are active are often you know struggle is to to create a critical mass of people who do demand and who do challenge what has happened and, and, and sort of push for a re, a, some kind of rehabilitation of, 
of progressive expansive principles in the organization of social life so my personal perspective is that no uh, this is not sort of a definitive shift that now cannot uh, be key, be repealed but you know I, I also appreciate that that it, it would be a long time coming this is not something that's just going to happen tomorrow um, and it could well get worse before it gets better Returning to the structural changes of power that you described in the 1980s, that involved obviously the reinforcement of patronage, uh, expanded corruption as a dominant modus operandi in Pakistani politics and society, with the state as the main dispenser and the military as the arbitrator. And you've defined the politics of common sense as the acceptance of that as the only way to navigate and the realization that opposition or resistance was risky and doomed to fail. Again, I mean, that, my question is, isn't that true for autocracies more generally, even though Pakistan formerly is not an autocracy? You also describe it as politics becoming a business like any other, and that is, that is applicable to lower as well as higher classes. Perhaps you can expand on all of that. Yeah, look, I mean, yes, you're right, of course. It, the fact that in autocratic or dictatorial or uh, very undemocratic systems of power, you know, people may know that these are oppressive systems, but they are generally risk averse because the risk, because the, you know, the threats associated with being caught if you challenge those systems of power are very high. So, of course, I'm not suggesting this is something unique. I think the point is simply to say in Pakistan's case, this you know, obviously contrasts very um, substantially with what with the period that persisted it, where transformative imaginaries, especially amongst the lower orders of society, were were, were quite um, you know had taken quite serious root, and and there was as again as we talked about earlier, there was this this uh, this belief that the world could be changed, and 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 it and you know being able to to survive in society or have some kind of livelihood or just just basic needs met was not a function of of your proximity to someone powerful but could be an entitlement um, and I think so my my point is to say is that that whole imaginary was displaced um, and 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 um, and you know to the extent that that politics then becomes increasingly cynical and transactional that's part of that same story which also again is a global phenomenon right if you look around the world um, even in western democracies there is a widespread disillusionment with the formal institutional um, means through which otherwise supposedly representative institutions representative political um, uh, institutions are are are, are formed and, and because there is a perception amongst large masses of people that it doesn't matter. This doesn't, it's not going to affect our lives. There, it's, it's irrelevant. These are just elites playing games with one another um, for to, to secure a bigger share of the pie. And I think that that sort of cynicism and, and transactional logic uh, is, is, I do believe, as, as I said earlier at the top of the piece, that is something that that has happened the world over, and and, and this is something that there's a crisis of of Paul. And of course, now as we see around the world, right wing populists are on the rise. Um, in some ways, 
precisely for that reason, because the political mainstream is 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 considered is is viewed very cynically, and um, and so people have you know for better or for worse for for various reasons have have sort of decided okay well someone who sounds different who says they're going to challenge the system um, is still a better bet than 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 any of these uh, entrenched types who just keep coming and going coming and going. Um, so, so there, there's there, yeah, there. These are things that I've I've written about is specific to Pakistan, but again, also mapping some global uh, developments. You've uh, referred to it already in terms of um, popular acceptance of the system being reflexive, and that meaning that there is always the option of popular of public opinion turning against the system. What would it take in Pakistan for that to happen? Oof, uh, I don't know. I don't know what a sufficient condition would be. I think necessary, of course, is that these, that this general demeanor towards politics, cynicism, is is at least somewhat replaced by a, a renewed belief that yes, politics can mean something. Politics can be transformative. Politics can be more than just these everyday cynical exchanges of of you know money and favors. To just navigate at the everyday, um, and it can be more than that. It can be something that that changes what the everyday looks like. Now that's hard work. Um, I, I think that 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 ultimately is is where really this what this book is is trying to identify. Now, having said that, of course, as I said earlier, also there are always pockets of resistance that emerge, you know, of various kinds, because state to against state power, against class power. And I've been involved with many of them over many years. Um, you know, in an ideal world, they would all come together and form some kind of big critical mass or countervailing force. Um, but that's not something that is easier said than done. In my experience, it hasn't happened quite yet. Will it happen? It could do. Um, you know, on a totally different note, um, if for those of your listeners who followed, of course, in recent times, a sort of a so-called, in inverted commas, new political force has come to power in Pakistan, right, which is Imran Khan's political party. Um, and the interesting thing about that, I mean, it's very right-wing, it's very populist, and it's very, very much full of empty signifiers. But the interesting thing about it is that it did signal sort of the mobilization of a younger segment of the population, which previously had had been quite uh, alienated from mainstream politics. And that tells me something, you know, the fact that they've rallied around a right-wing populist is, of course, something that we see happening globally. So that's not something that I feel is is all that um, uh, sort of it, it's it's alarming for its own reasons, but it also it, it, it maps the global trend. But but the fact that there are young people who are interested and who want to see something different, I think itself is 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 a positive sign. And as that demographic grows, which it is, Pakistan's population is overwhelmingly young. 65% or so is below the age of 25, which is, is a phenomenal amount of people. And as that population grows, as it becomes more politically conscious in the digital age, as it potentially runs into more and more serious you know, crises because structurally there's not enough jobs, people are getting educated but not being able to get employment, um, you know, whether it's ecological crises or whether it's just 
the fact that that Pakistan continues to be a staging ground for external powers or, or militancy, it could be that that all of that combines to to create the conditions for the emergence of something expansive and progressive. Now, it'll take a lot of work, but but I do feel that that it's possible, and that that is that of course is uh, is, is a story that that will be written once we know how it plays out. The risk, of course, is if one looks at Imran Khan's first months in office, is that he seems to be espousing the very ultra-conservative views we're talking about and seems to be beholden to almost, uh, like many others in, in, in the Pakistani community, to uh, militant groups and, 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 and extremist worldviews. So in the end, many of those who voted for him could turn out to be very disappointed. I think that there is a there is a very, I mean, there are there are the, the prospect that that these young people who were mobilized or who were inspired by Imran and his party um, could turn around, as you say, very quickly realize that this is a lot of hot air. Um, now that could trigger them moving in a different political direction, or it could, of course, mean that they. They just sit on their hands and say nothing's ever going to happen in this country. And of course, that is in large part will be um, will well, well at least one of the big factors in which which of those trajectories they adopt is is whether or not there is a viable left wing alternative on 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 the horizon that they can turn to, which is again as I said something that that uh, that one is trying to build. But I, I can't claim. Has, been, has reached a stage um, where where there is you know where there's a widespread popular um, sort of uh, in some ways uh, uh, acceptance or, or something big about to happen. I think it's still a while away, but I do feel, as I said earlier, the structural conditions are such that it, it's definitely a possibility. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, You've, um, as we come to the end of this segment, um, you've described Islam or religion as a tool of upper mobility. Uh, can you explain what you mean? Yeah, I think that I, I've, I've met, we've, we've touched on this at different points uh, over the last little bit. Uh, when I say that, I mean that, you know, um, political organizations on the right religious organizations now actually represent sort of a ways to 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 acquire new status uh, in many ways income and wealth um, and and that that reflects their rootedness the fact that they exist in neighborhoods the fact that they have uh, links with with commercial segments the fact that they are heavily tied into as we as you mentioned earlier those foreign support networks whether it's Saudi or 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 other Gulf networks, and that those are means of mobility. Those are ways in which ordinary young men, in particular, but also women in some cases, can can become can can acquire newfound influence in society because they have this status or because they have these affiliations, and also in many in many cases can also um, can can generate livelihoods, um, and that that is. Part of what the politics of common sense was all about. It wasn't just a question of defeating the left or a new ideology. It was also about the fact that there was an incentive to to align with the state, to align with with these 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 groups that were 
inching their way into the, the structure of power because and and therefore to be co-opted and not challenge the system because because there were gains to be had however small and however nominal but you know in a society where uh, you know like most post-colonial societies where people live on the margins and, there, and there's so much insecurity even even nominal gains uh, look better than than nothing at all and the role of this of religion of Islam of course has also helped the regime to legitimize opposition whether it's the class or whether it's the state power for sure yeah that's of course a huge part of it I mean to in a society where you know as I said earlier during the Afghan war where 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 uh, where alternative ideologies were demonized uh, it's a source of fear. I mean, there is an element that the politics of common sense is also about self-censorship because you know that you could be, you know, your your head could be on the chopping block if you if you if you venture ideas um, that aren't conformist, and, and for sure that's a big part of the story and continues to be. Um, as as you as again, some of your listeners may have seen in recent times with 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 uh, with sort of. Cases of, of individuals, even young, this young girl, a Christian girl, who, who's, uh, who, whose life has pretty much been on hold or has been in a state of torment and in jail. Um, and that's, that's commonplace. Um, that's not unusual. And that the prominent examples are, are, are the exceptions. The, the, the standard everyday rule is that people just don't say stuff. People just don't talk. People just don't articulate dissent. Um, even though they may they may harbor it because it's too risky to do so. Awesome. Pakistan is a fascinating story and we could go on for another hour, but unfortunately we don't have the time for that. Uh, what I want to ask you finally is, now that you've done this book, where do you go from here? Um, I don't know. I... I um... I think that I've increasingly, right at the end in my epilogue, I started to hint at this. I think that with this rise of this younger, upwardly mobile sort of, uh, or at least aspiring middle class, you know, the kind of people that 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 want to see something different and that maybe have supported Imran in this particular election, and then the way in which the political field itself is changing with the rise of digital technology, these are things that I want to explore. I mean, in terms of thinking about a new emergent politics of the left. Um, I think the field of politics and the ways in which it's, I mean, I can't see uh, the trade union movement or a peasant movement of the 60s and 70s emerging in the same way. I think now, if there is going to be a progressive alternative, it, 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 will, it will look different. And, uh, you know, in part, we see that with some of the, 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 the movements in, in, in Western societies like a Corbyn or a Sanders. And so I think I would like to explore this further and think about it. I mean, we also saw the disappointments associated with this new, so to speak, inverted commas, new emergent political subject with, with of course, the Arab Spring, um, which was also very tech savvy and very young and so on. But it, it, it has met, well, hopefully not a, a definitive and final fate, but at least in its initial phase, seven, eight years down the line, has of course uh, has ended in a lot of disappointment for a lot of people. So I think these sorts of trends and these sorts of potentialities are, are worth exploring, and that's something that I'm looking to do uh, moving forward. Awesome. That sounds like a, 
fantastic and, and also very interesting staking out of, of new territory. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care and all the best. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.